Welcome back to another World Audiobook. Super stoked to be bringing you another chapter of The Return of Sherlock Holmes. This is a really good mystery, uh, this one in particular. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, yeah, this is a bit of a longer episode. It is, I still am cutting the episode in half here, uh, which, like I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, I would love to stop doing that. I would love to just be able to pu publish full, full length episodes uh, every week. And in order to do that, I do need some help from you. So either we need to grow the podcast audience just in general, or if we could get a few more patrons on board through Patreon. Patreon, you can go to netherworldaudiobooks.com and you can sign up uh, to the pa Patreon uh, to be a patron uh, there. That would be a huge help and uh, would uh, just allow me to kind of free me up uh, from other responsibilities to be able to focus on the podcast even more and be able to bring you full-length chapter or long episodes or maybe even two chapters depending on the book uh, on a weekly basis. So if you want longer chapters, then I need your help. Get in touch uh, and I will definitely continue to bring stuff here. Uh, I hate having to chop the chapters up into this. I don't like doing that if I can help it um, but just right now in this stage of life with uh, where we're at uh, it's kind of necessary <laughs> with the current situation but uh, if you did want to become a patron and sign up that will definitely help us get more toward that point of being able to um, yeah bring you longer episodes every week otherwise if you just tell other people about the podcast get other people signed up for the podcast I would love to be able to start bringing you some longer episodes every single week but I will not make them longer by doing longer intros. So without further ado, let's get into the next chapter of The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Chapter 12. The Adventure of the Abbey Grange. It was on a bitterly cold and frosty morning, towards the end of the winter of 97, that I was awakened by a tugging at my shoulder. It was Holmes. The candle in his hand shone upon his eager, stooping face, and told me at a glance that something was amiss. "'Come, Watson, come!' he cried. "'The game is afoot. Not a word. Into your clothes and come!' Ten minutes later we were both in a cab, and rattling through the silent streets on our way to Charing Cross Station. The first faint winter's dawn was beginning to appear, and we could dimly see the occasional figure of an early workman as he passed us, blurred and indistinct in the opalescent London reek. Holmes nestled in silence into his heavy coat, and I was glad to do the same, for the air was most bitter, and neither of us had broken our fast. It was not until we had consumed some hot tea at the station and taken our places in the Kentish train that we were sufficiently thawed, he to speak and I to listen. Holmes drew a note from his pocket and read aloud. Abbey Grange, Marsham, Kent, 3.30am. My dear Mr. Holmes, I should be very glad of your immediate assistance in what promises to be a most remarkable case. It is something quite in your line. Except for releasing the lady, I will see that everything is kept exactly as I have found it. But I beg you not to lose an instant, as it is difficult to leave Sir Eustace there. Yours faithfully, Stanley Hopkins. Hopkins has called me in seven times, and on each occasion his summons have been entirely justified. Said Holmes. I fancy that every one of his cases has found its way into your collection, and I must admit, Watson, that you have some power of selection, which atones for much which I deplore in your narratives. Your fatal habit of looking at everything from the point of view of a story, instead of as a scientific exercise, has ruined what might have been an instructive and even classical series of demonstrations. You slur over work of the utmost finesse and delicacy, in order to dwell upon sensational details which may excite but cannot possibly instruct the reader. Why do you not write them yourself? said I, with some bitterness. 
I will, my dear Watson, I will. At present I am, as you know, fairly busy, but I propose to devote my declining years to the composition of a textbook, which shall focus the whole art of detection into one volume. Our present research appears to be a case of murder. You think this Sir Eustace is dead, then? I should say so. Hopkins' writing shows considerable agitation, and he is not an emotional man. Yes, I gather there has been violence, and that the body is left for our inspection. A mere suicide would not have caused him to send for me. As to the release of the lady, it would appear that she has been locked in her room during the tragedy. We are moving in high life, Watson. Crackling paper, E.B. monogram, coat of arms, picturesque address. I think that friend Hopkins will live up to his reputation, and that we shall have an interesting morning. The crime was committed before twelve last night. How can you possibly tell? By an inspection of the trains, and by reckoning the time. The local police had to be called in, they had to communicate with Scotland Yard, Hopkins had to go out, and he in turn had to send for me. All that makes a fair night's work. Well, here we are at Chislehurst Station, and we shall soon set our doubts at rest. A drive of a couple of miles through narrow country lanes brought us to a park gate which was opened for us by an old lodgekeeper, whose haggard face bore the reflection of some great disaster. The avenue ran through a noble park between lines of ancient elms and ended in a low, widespread house, pillared in front after the fashion of Palladio. The central part was evidently of a great age and shrouded in ivy, but the large windows showed that modern changes had been carried out, and one wing of the house appeared to be entirely new. The youthful figure and alert, eager face of Inspector Stanley Hopkins confronted us in the open doorway. I am very glad you have come, Mr. Holmes, and you too, Dr. Watson. But, indeed, if I had my time over again, I should not have troubled you, for since the lady has come to herself, she has given so clear an account of the affair that there is not much left for us to do. You remember that Lewisham gang of burglars? What, the three Randalls? Exactly, the father and two sons. Is their work, I have no doubt of it. They did a job at Sydneyham a fortnight ago, and were seen and described. Rather cool to do another so soon and so near, but it is they beyond all doubt. It's a hanging matter this time. So Eustace is dead, then? Yes, his head was knocked in with his own poker. So Eustace Brackenstall, the driver tells me. Exactly, one of the richest men in Kent. Lady Brackenstall is in the morning room. Poor lady, she's had a most dreadful experience. She seemed half dead when I saw her first. I think you had best see her and hear her account of the facts. Then we will examine the dining room together. Lady Brackenstall was no ordinary person. Seldom have I seen so graceful a figure, so womanly a presence, and so beautiful a face. She was a blonde, golden-haired, blue-eyed, and would no doubt have had the perfect complexion which goes with such colouring had not her recent experience left her drawn and haggard. Her sufferings were physical as well as mental, for over one eye rose a hideous plum-coloured swelling, which her maid, a tall, austere woman, was bathing assiduously with vinegar and water. The lady lay back exhausted upon a couch, but her quick, observant gaze as we entered the room, and the alert expression of her beautiful features, showed that neither her wits nor her courage had been shaken by her terrible experience. She was enveloped in a loose dressing-gown of blue and silver, but a black sequin-covered dinner dress lay upon the couch beside her. I have told you all that happened, Mr. Hopkins, she said wearily. Could you not repeat it for me? 
Well, if you think it necessary, I will tell these gentlemen what occurred. Have they been in the dining room yet? I thought they had better hear your ladyship's story first. I shall be glad when you can arrange matters. It is horrible to me to think of him still lying there. She shuddered and buried her face in her hands. As she did so, the loose gown fell back from her forearms. Holmes uttered an exclamation. You have other injuries, madame. What is this? Two vivid red spots stood out on one of the white round limbs. She hastily covered it. It is nothing. It has no connection with this hideous business tonight. If you and your friend will sit down, I will tell you all I can. I am the wife of Sir Eustace Brackenstall. I have been married about a year. I suppose that it is no use my attempting to conceal that our marriage has not been a happy one. I fear that all our neighbours would tell you that, even if I were to attempt to deny it. Perhaps the fault may be partly mine. I was brought up in the freer, less conventional atmosphere of South Australia, and this English life, with its proprieties and its primness, is not congenial to me. But the main reason lies in the one fact which is notorious to everyone, and that is that Sir Eustace was a confirmed drunkard. To be with such a man for an hour is unpleasant. Can you imagine what it means for a sensitive and high-spirited woman to be tied to him for day and night? It is a sacrilege, a crime, a villainy to hold that such a marriage is binding. I say that these monstrous laws of yours will bring a curse upon the land. God will not let such wickedness endure. For an instant she sat up, her cheeks flushed, and her eyes blazing from under the terrible mark upon her brow. Then the strong, soothing hand of the austere maid drew her head down on to the cushion, and the wild anger died away into passionate sobbing. At last she continued. "'I will tell you about last night. You are aware, perhaps, that in this house all the servants sleep in the modern wing— this central block is made up of the dwelling rooms, with the kitchen behind and our bedroom above. My maid, Teresa, sleeps above my room. There is no one else, and no sound could alarm those who are in the farther wing. This must have been well known to the robbers, or they would not have acted as they did. Sir Eustace retired about half-past ten. The servants had already gone to their quarters. Only my maid was up, and she had remained in her room at the top of the house until I needed her services. I sat until after eleven in this room, absorbed in a book. Then I walked round to see that all was right before I went upstairs. It was my custom to do this myself, for, as I have explained, Sir Eustace was not always to be trusted. I went into the kitchen, the butler's pantry, the gun-room, the billiard-room, the drawing-room, and finally the dining-room. As I approached the window, which is covered with thick curtains, I suddenly felt the wind blow upon my face— and realized that it was open. I flung the curtain aside, and found myself face to face with a broad-shouldered elderly man, who had just stepped into the room. The window is a long French one, which really forms a door leading to the lawn. I held my bedroom candle lit in my hand, and by its light, behind the first man, I saw two others, who were in the act of entering. I stepped back, but the fellow was on me in an instant. He caught me first by the wrist, and then by the throat— I opened my mouth to scream, but he struck me a savage blow with his fist over the eye that felled me to the ground. I must have been unconscious for a few minutes, for when I came to myself I found that they had torn down the bell-rope 
and had secured me tightly by the oaken chair which stands at the head of the dining-table. I was so firmly bound that I could not move, and a handkerchief round my mouth prevented me from uttering a sound. It was at this instant that my unfortunate husband entered the room. He had evidently heard some suspicious sounds, and he came prepared for such a scene as he found. He was dressed in nightshirt and trousers, with his favourite blackthorn cudgel in his hand. He rushed at the burglars, but another—it was an elderly man—stooped, picked the poker out of the grate, and struck him a horrible blow as he passed. He fell with a groan, and never moved again. I fainted once more, but again it could only have been a very few minutes during which I was insensible. When I opened my eyes, I found that they had collected the silver from the sideboard, and they had drawn a bottle of wine which stood there. Each of them had a glass in its hand. I have already told you, have I not, that one was elderly, with a beard, and the others young, hairless lads. They might have been a father with his two sons. They talked together in whispers. Then they came over and made sure that I was securely bound. Finally, they withdrew, closing the window after them. It was quite a quarter of an hour before I got my mouth free. When I did so, my screams brought the maid to my assistance. The other servants were soon alarmed, and we sent for the local police, who instantly communicated with London. That is really all that I can tell you, gentlemen, and I trust that it will not be necessary for me to go over so painful a story again. Any questions, Mr. Holmes? asked Hopkins. I will not impose any further tax upon Lady Brackenstall's patience and time, said Holmes. Before I go into the dining room, I should like to hear your experience. He looked at the maid. I saw the men before ever they came into the house, said she. As I sat by my bedroom window, I saw three men in the moonlight down by the lodge gate yonder, but I thought nothing of it at the time. It was more than an hour after that I heard my mistress scream, and down I ran to find her, poor lamb, just as she says, and him on the floor, and his blood and brains all over the room. It was enough to drive a woman out of her wits, tied there, and her very dress spotted with him, but she never what encouraged did Miss Mary Fraser of Adelaide, and Lady Brackenstall of Abbey Grange hasn't learned new ways. You've questioned her long enough, you gentlemen, and now she's coming to her own room, just with her old Teresa, to get the rest that she badly needs. With a motherly tenderness, the gaunt woman put her arm round her mistress and led her from the room. She has been with her all her life, said Hopkins, nursed her as a baby, and came with her to England when they first left Australia eighteen months ago. Teresa Wright is her name, and the kind of maid you don't pick up nowadays. This way, Mr. Holmes, if you please. The keen interest had passed out of Holmes's expressive face, and I knew that with the mystery all the charm of the case had departed. There still remained an arrest to be effected, but what were these commonplace rogues that he should soil his hands with them? An obtruse and learned specialist who finds that he has been called in for a case of measles would experience something of the annoyance which I read in my friend's eyes. Yet the scene in the dining-room of the Abbey Grange was sufficiently strange to arrest his attention and to recall his waning interest. It was a very large and high chamber, with carved oak ceilings, oaken panelling, and a fine array of deer's heads, and ancient weapons around the walls. At the further end from the door was the high French window, of which we had heard. Three smaller windows on the right-hand side filled the apartment with cold winter sunshine. On the left was a large, deep fireplace, with a massive overhanging oak mantelpiece. 
Beside the fireplace was a heavy oaken chair with arms and crossbars at the bottom. In and out through the open woodwork was woven a crimson cord, which was secured at each side of the crosspiece below. In releasing the lady, the cord had been slipped off her, but the knots with which it had been secured still remained. These details only struck our attention afterwards, for our thoughts were entirely absorbed by the terrible object which lay upon the tiger-skin hearthrug in front of the fire. It was the body of a tall, well-made man, about forty years of age. He lay upon his back, his face upturned, with his white teeth grinning through his short black beard. His two clenched hands were raised above his head, and a heavy blackthorn stick lay across them. His dark, handsome aquiline features were convulsed into a spasm of vindictive hatred, which had set his dead face in a terribly fiendish expression. He had evidently been in his bed when the alarm had broken out, for he wore a foppish, embroidered nightshirt, and his bare feet projected from his trousers. His head was horribly injured, and the whole room bore witness to the savage ferocity of the blow which had struck him down. Beside him lay the heavy poker, bent into a curve by the concussion. Holmes examined both it and the indescribable wreck which it had wrought. "'He must be a powerful man, this Elder Randall,' he remarked. "'Yes,' said Hopkins. "'I have some record of the fellow, and he is a rough customer.' "'You should have no difficulty in getting him.' "'Not the slightest. We have been on the lookout for him, and there was some idea that he had got away to America. Now that we know that the gang are here, I don't see how they can escape.' We have the news at every seaport already, and a reward will be offered before evening. What beats me is how they could have done so mad a thing, knowing that the lady could describe them, and that we could not fail to recognize a description. Exactly. One would have expected that they would silence Lady Brackenstall as well. They may not have realized, I suggested, that she had recovered from her faint. That is likely enough. If she seemed to be senseless, they would not take her life. What about this poor fellow, Hopkins? I seem to have heard some queer stories about him. He was a good-hearted man when he was sober, but a perfect fiend when he was drunk, or rather, when he was half-drunk, for he seldom really went the whole way. The devil seemed to be in him at such times, and he was capable of anything. From what I hear, in spite of all his wealth and his title, he very nearly came our way once or twice. There was a scandal about his drenching a dog with petroleum and setting it on fire her ladyship's dog, to make the matter worse, and that was only hushed up with difficulty. Then he threw a decanter at the maid, Teresa Wright. There was trouble about that. On the whole, and between ourselves, it will be a brighter house without him. What are you looking at now? Holmes was down on his knees, examining with great attention the knots upon the red cord with which the lady had been secured. Then he carefully scrutinized the broken and frayed end where it had snapped off when the burglar had dragged it down. When this was pulled down, the bell in the kitchen must have rung loudly, he remarked. No one could hear it. The kitchen stands right at the back of the house. How did the burglar know no one would hear it? How dared he pull at a bell rope in that reckless fashion? Exactly, Mr. Holmes, exactly. You put the very question which I have asked myself again and again. There can be no doubt that this fellow must have known the house and its habits. He would have perfectly understood that the servants would all be in bed at that comparatively early hour, and that no one could possibly hear a bell ring in the kitchen. Therefore, he must have been in close league with one of the servants. Surely that is evident. 
but there are eight servants, and all of good character. Other things being equal, said Hans, one would suspect the one at whose head the master threw a decanter, and yet that would involve treachery towards the mistress to whom this woman seems devoted. Well, well, the point is a minor one, and when you have Randall you will probably find no difficulty in securing his accomplice. The lady's story certainly seems to be corroborated, if it needed corroboration, by every detail which we see before us. He walked to the French window and threw it open. There are no signs here, but the ground is iron-hard, and one would not expect them. I see that these candles in the mantelpiece have been lighted. Yes, it was by their light and that of the lady's bedroom candle that the burglars saw their way about. And what did they take? Well, they did not take much, only half a dozen articles of plate off the sideboard. Lady Brackenstall thinks that they were themselves so disturbed by the death of Sir Eustace that they did not ransack the house as they would otherwise have done. No doubt that is true, and yet they drank some wine, I understand. To steady their nerves. Exactly. These three glasses upon the sideboard have been untouched, I suppose? Yes, and the bottle stands as they left it. Let us look at it. Hello, hello. What is this? The three glasses were grouped together, all of them tinged with wine, and one of them containing some dregs of beeswing. The bottle stood near them, two-thirds full, and beside it lay a long, deeply stained cork. Its appearance and the dust upon the bottle showed that it was no common vintage which the murderers had enjoyed. A change had come over Holmes's manner. He had lost his listless expression, and again I saw an alert light of interest in his keen, deep-set eyes. He raised the cork and examined it minutely. "'How did they draw it?' he asked. Hopkins pointed to a half-open drawer. In it lay some table linen and a large corkscrew. Did Lady Brackenstall say that the screw was used? No, you remember that she was senseless at the moment when the bottle was opened. Quite so. As a matter of fact, that screw was not used. This bottle was opened by a pocket screw, probably contained a knife, and not more than an inch and a half long. If you will examine the top of the cork, you will observe that the screw was driven in three times before the cork was extracted. It has never been transfixed. This long screw would have transfixed it and drawn it up with a single pull. When you catch this fellow, you will find that he has one of these multiplex knives in his possession. Excellent, said Hopkins. But these glasses do puzzle me, I confess. Lady Brackenstall actually saw the three men drinking, did she not? Yes, she was clear about that. Then there is an end of it. What more is to be said? And yet... You must admit that the three glasses are very remarkable, Hopkins. What? You see nothing remarkable? Well, well, let it pass. Perhaps when a man has special knowledge, and special powers like my own, it rather encourages him to seek a complex explanation when a simpler one is at hand. Of course, it must be a mere chance about the glasses. Well, good morning, Hopkins. I don't see that I can be of any use to you, and you appear to have your case very clear. You will let me know when Randall is arrested, and any further developments which may occur. I trust that I shall soon have to congratulate you upon a successful conclusion. Come, Watson, I fancy that we may employ ourselves more profitably at home. During our return journey, I could see by Holmes's face that he was much puzzled by something which he had observed. Every now and then, by an effort, he would throw off the impression and talk as if the matter were clear, 
but then his doubts would settle down upon him again, and his knitted brows and abstracted eyes would show that his thoughts had gone back once more to the great dining-room of the Abbey Grange, in which this midnight tragedy had been enacted. At last, by a sudden impulse, just as our train was crawling out of a suburban station, he sprang onto the platform and pulled me out after him. "'Excuse me, my dear fellow,' said he as we watched the rear carriages of our train disappearing round a curve. "'I am sorry to make you the victim of what may seem a mere whim, but all oh my life, Watson, I simply can't leave that case in this condition. Every instinct that I possess cries out against it. It's wrong. It's all wrong. I'll swear that it's wrong!' and yet the lady's story was complete. The maid's corroboration was sufficient. The detail was fairly exact. What have I to put up against that? Three wine-glasses, that is all. But if I had not taken things for granted, if I had examined everything with the care which I should have shown, had we approached the case de novo, and had no cut-and-dried story to warp my mind, should I not then have found something more definite to go upon? Of course I should. Sit down on this bench, Watson, until a train for Chislehurst arrives, and allow me to lay the evidence before you, imploring you in the first instance to dismiss from your mind the idea that anything which the maid or her mistress may have said must necessarily be true. The lady's charming personality must not be permitted to warp our judgment. Surely there are details in her story which, if we looked at in cold blood, would excite our suspicion. These burglars made a considerable haul at Sydenham a fortnight ago. Some account of them and of their appearance was in the papers, and would naturally occur to anyone who wished to invent a story in which imaginary robbers should play a part. As a matter of fact, burglars who have done a good stroke of business are, as a rule, only too glad to enjoy the proceeds in peace and quiet without embarking on another perilous undertaking. Again, it is unusual for burglars to operate at so early an hour. It is unusual for burglars to strike a lady to prevent her screaming, since one would imagine that was the sure way to make her scream. It is unusual for them to commit murder when their numbers are sufficient to overpower one man. It is unusual for them to be content with a limited plunder when there was much more within their reach. And finally, I should say that it is very unusual for such men to leave a bottle half empty. How do all these unusuals strike you, Watson? Their cumulative effect is certainly considerable, and yet each of them is quite possible in itself. The most unusual thing of all, as it seems to me, is that the lady should be tied to the chair. Well, I'm not so clear about that, Watson, for it is evident that they must either kill her or else secure her in such a way that she could not give immediate notice of their escape. But at any rate, I have shown, have I not, that there is a certain element of improbability about the lady's story. And now, on top of this, comes the incident of the wine-glasses. But what about the wine-glasses? What about the wine-glasses? Well, you have to come back next week to get that. And if you want uh, to stop having these cliffhangers like this, like I said, if you want to sign up and become a patron, that would mean the world to me. Uh, otherwise, if you just want to tell other people about the podcast, that goes a long ways in just uh, helping me to be able to continue to do this. I, I do have a normal day job, believe it or not. <laughs> and the podcast is really a labor of love. But if it, if it does kind of start growing in that way, then I would I would really love to not be able to, not have to chop episodes in half like this. So, uh, yeah, if you, any way you, you can support
support the podcast, you can just go to anotherworldaudiobooks.com. There's a bunch of different ways to support the podcast. You can get some awesome merch. Um, like, if you ever buy a hoodie, like, might not buy another World Audiobooks hoodie. Might as well. If you're going to buy an audiobook, you can uh, buy it uh, from, or you can buy another World Audiobooks uh, anywhere you buy audiobooks, and that helps support the podcast. So you can come on Patreon and get some awesome perks there as well. When you sign up to be a patron, you do get a bunch of free audiobooks too. So, can't beat that. Otherwise, just tell people about the podcast that goes so far in helping just grow it and uh, grow the audience. So, I just want to also say thank you and hello to all of our new listeners and old. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for tuning in. It just it means the world to me, and I love being able to do this. So, couldn't do it without you, and I really, really appreciate it. So, with that, I hope you have a great week, and we'll catch you next week to find out what about the wine glasses. <laughs>